0: Even on the way, I was listening to the news, but I got a call from a friend in Boston and I knew some people who were in the Boston Marathon. And Most of you probably know there was those double bombing at the very end of the Marathon and a few people killed and a hundred injured pretty pretty badly. Um, and I'm curious how many people know folks in Boston or feel like you're affected by that in some way, just to know half the room. yeah. Um, Yeah, I knew some folks running the marathon and um, so first I ask that we just light some candles up here and maybe both now and at the end we'll just do a little bit of practice of compassion to hold in your heart all those who are frightened, all those who are injured, the families, people who are nearby those who witnessed it, all the people who try to respond to it, to breathe in and out and offer your love and compassion for all of them. Because even if you don't know someone in Boston, in some way They're still your family. The Mother Teresa said, the trouble with you is you make your family circle too small. (laughs) And then as you do this, you hold all the survivors everywhere. The survivors of bomb blasts and so many communities and countries where there are tragedies and those who've lost people, breathing in and out with this capacity for mercy and compassion that is so natural to us as human beings. Held in compassion, may their fears and sorrows be eased, everyone May they be healed. Because one of the great questions for us as human beings is how do we respond to suffering, to violence, to greed and hatred and ignorance? Do we add to it? Do we respond in a way that fuels it? Or is there another way? Um, You know the old Gandhi bumper sticker that you see around more in Berkeley probably than anywhere else. It says, "You know, an eye for an eye, and the whole makes the whole world blind." How do we respond? Um, because it's not news that it happens. It's a terrible thing. Um, and if you read Steven Pinker's book called um, "Better Angels of Our Nature," this amazing large book of history, sociology, anthropology, and so forth, he documents in a quite a beautiful way, and it's been lionized by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal on one end and you know, liberal things on the other, um, that there's actually been a decline in war and violence, even though it doesn't seem like it, but there has over several hundred years, and that the conditions of women, though they're bad still in many places, are improving gradually over the centuries in the condition of, you know, the number of slaves in the world have diminished and it's not okay to have slaves even though there still are, and that a lot of the things that we worry about, the people um, have done to one another, that it's actually getting a bit better. As Martin Luther King said, the arc of history may be long, but it bends toward justice. And so there's this sense of the arc and this. Kind of magnificent book, and there's a great story, a true one, um, about the kind of response of the heart. Mm. Remember when you studied in uh, middle school or whatever it was, the various empires of the world, you know, Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan and the empires of Egypt or other places like that? Hey, Sean. Okay, we have um, an emergency and we need to have one car moved as soon as possible. A gray Scion 5ETJ821. Anybody have that car? Would you please come back in? Thank you for doing that. Somebody's got to get out. And when you have a big group of people, periodically there are emergencies. It's also part of incarnation, you know, you think that you're secure and it's an illusion. It's true, it's an illusion. (laughs) You're secure certain moments and then you're not, and then you die. (laughs) Yeah, you you laugh, right? You'll see, right? So, and that's human incarnation, it's wild, it is, and here we are. Okay, so how do we respond? So this great story, there you were, studying the various empires, and one of them was the empire of, of King or Emperor Ash- Ashoka or Ashoka in India, um, the Mauryan Empire that was a good part of the whole Indian subcontinent. And it was mm, 2200, 2300 years ago. And he was this warrior king who conquered much of the known world of India Pakistan, India, all that whole territory, enormous territory. And he was sitting in his tent after a day of a huge battle to conquer this kingdom in the southern part of India that his forces had won, um, looking over the wreckage in on the battlefield and realizing also that some of the people that he most loved, his warriors, had been killed. and and so forth. Yes, he triumphed and he now had a bigger empire. And across the edge of the battlefield, absolutely peacefully walked with his bowl in his hand, walked this Buddhist monk in his robes, those kind of bright orange robes. And King Ashok, as he wrote about this, witnessed this and watched. This monk walk so beautifully and peacefully it's like when Thich Han came here and there were 3,000 people on the hillside waiting for Thich Han, waiting, 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 the, the teacher's going to come, and he walked up the road so mindfully and everyone went, ah, oh, yes, right, that's what it's like to be so present. So here was this monk walking and Emperor Ashok, King Ashok, reflected and he said, I who now, you know, are the emperor of lands as far as I could travel, can't sleep at night because of the loss of friends, and the fears, and the tragedies. I, who have wealth beyond imagination, um, have an unsettled heart. And this monk who has nothing seems to be more peaceful, and, and contented, and happy than I, who am the great emperor. And he said, get that monk over here, right? So the monk came and became his teacher. And if you travel to India now, in many of the distant parts of India, there are these stone pillars, Ashoka pillars, that you can go and read the inscription as it's translated, um, because they have um, incised in them the edicts of Emperor Ashoka, um, because he, 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 he listened to the monk and he realized that what he was longing for was not going to come from another battle and it wasn't going to come from more violence and he really took to heart both the teachings of nonviolence and then he promulgated these rules which included respect for every kind of religion you know respect for the environment and the animals that you live with um a, a universal education as much as possible for People, a kind of wise economic system. And it was actually one of the most uh, wise or enlightened societies um, in thousands of years. And all because that monk walked across the field of battle and the emperor realized, oh, there's another way. Yeah. Mind is the forerunner of all things, it says in the Dhammapada, the beginning line of it. Nothing can harm you more than your own mind untrained, not your worst enemy. And nothing can help you more than your own mind and heart trained or awakened in a wise and compassionate way, not even your most loving friends or family. So there's a way in which The way your mind and your heart holds the sufferings and the beauty of the world, because it's full of almost unbearable beauty, and then the ocean of tears. It's got the whole range. That's what human incarnation offers you. How do you respond to the suffering and the beauty of the world? Can you appreciate and love the beauty of it? You're here for such a short while, really, you know? And that's the wild thing, too. Um, It seems very long when you're a kid, between one birthday and another. You know how long it seems? And then it starts to, like, shorten, right? And it does not so long anymore. You're not here for that long. So there's this magnificent, beautiful, amazing human life, but also the ocean of tears. And how do you respond when your measure of suffering comes? Because it will. Loss, um, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow, birth and death around you, and then your turn. Um, How do you respond? Anybody not have that, by the way? Just check on the c So here's Martin Luther King after his church was bombed. And he said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. And while we cannot in good conscience obey your unjust laws, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience. We will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will not only win our freedom, but we will win your freedom as well." So there you are. There's the bombing of his church and the response. And of course, we can all get caught up in these strange, I mean, the the goal of terrorism is to make you terrified, very simple. And if you become terrified in some way, then you take that external suffering and you let it dwell in you and I remember after nine eleven and all the kind of great fears that came, and the fears get spread out anybody who looks like whatever it is that you imagine those those people do and so the gas station where I go um, uh, have gone for some years I was owned by some some folks that I know, that are friends who are Persian. And people started driving through and shouting horrible epithets to them. themselves. So, this is Marin too, come on, you know. But people were freaked out. And then in that fear, it becomes us and them in some way. And I went out, and I don't usually do this, and I bought them a great big American flag. <laughs> and I brought it and they put it up and hung it, you know, by the pumps. And then people stopped driving through and shouting things at them. Um, but how, you know, how do we respond? Ari Ratana, my friend in Sri Lanka, who is one of the great community organizers and seekers of justice in Asia, talked about the the ending of their civil war requiring, he said, if we look wisely, it took us 500 years to get into the dilemma of the civil war, 300 years of colonial oppression. and 200 years of economic injustice between the rich and the poor parts of the island, and 500 years of conflict between Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus. So it will take us 500 years to undo it. Um, and I offer to our community, he called this meeting of hundreds of thousands of people, the Sarvodia 500 year peace plan. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 years of ceasefire and 25 years of rebuilding roads and schools and 50 years of learning each other's languages and writing the economic injustice. And he said, after 100 years, we'll see how we're doing. <laughs> and it's so beautiful because it's not, as I say when I tell this story so often, it's not about the next election cycle or the polls or something. It's this sense of, of what is right for the world and the respect. And I've been involved, and because there's conflict in Burma, and I'm part of some foundation and doing some work in Burma, when you lift the lid of oppression of their this horrible military dictatorship, then the divisiveness that's been kept down by the military, whether it's in Yugoslavia or in Egypt, between the Copts and Coptic Christians and the Muslims, or with the Sunni and the Shia and the Lawites in Syria or wherever it happens to be, um, then unless they're dealt with those old ethnic um, prejudices, and conflicts re-arise, as they have in Burma, and So so the, there started to be this rising wave of violence against Muslims in Burma, and unfortunately, some of the Buddhist monks in Burma kind of got on that bandwagon, because it's a way of getting power, you know, rile everybody up, and so forth, and you think, Buddhist monks, like, they're not supposed to do that, right? But every generation, there are Buddhists behaving badly. There are. I mean, it's not like it's not a big number, but they're out there, you know, and I, I know their names, but anyway, we'll leave that aside. <laughs> and so um, I got um, some teachers that I've been connected with and other colleagues and friends and so forth, and we got wrote a letter together that was published with their pictures in full-page color in every newspaper in Burma, with Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama and Ari Ratana and various other great Buddhist elders from around the world, all there signing it, saying "Burmese to the, to the Burmese people, we respect your lineage of thousands of years of dignity and nobility. We understand that you carry the, the teachings of the Buddha of respect as well for every being in the society. Of the teachings of nonviolence and not harming, which are so central to the awakening of the Buddha and to the awakening of all beings. And in these times that are so difficult, we both want to admire and encourage you, all of you, lay people, monastics, monks, and nuns, to stand up for that dignity and nobility that is your heritage and your birthright and was all published in there. It might have worked, might have helped a little bit, because recently, Um, I got news that there's this whole, um, young generation that has been making t-shirts. Um, you know, some of them with pictures of the Dalai Lama and other things on that say, um, no racism and violence will come from me. And then printing them by the thousands and distributing them. And that there's something really good in the hearts of most people when it's reminded and it's touched. So it's very clear that for this world, um, the outer developments that we all benefit from, modern technology and World Wide Web and computers and nanotechnology and biotechnology and all the wildly new capacities we have, have to be matched by an inner development talk about this almost every Monday, that um, the outer technology can still be used to continue warfare, cyber war now we're going to have, and you know, we'll have bio war and all those things, and to continue racism and tribalism and environmental destruction, it doesn't stop that. That only stops when the outer development is matched by the inner development in which we as human beings begin to recognize that it's us, as Mother Teresa says, that it's our family, it's our biosphere, it's the water that we share, the groundwater, the air that we share, you know, all this stuff from the Fukushima um, meltdown in Japan, drifts over and lands on the coast of Oregon, um, and we can't separate ourselves from the rest of the world. So. Our human identity actually has to change from the kind of um, primitive brain, if you will, the reptilian brain in there that's like very small and tribal, you know, and says, okay, only people that I know and I'm related to and the rest are the enemies. And this tribal way of being, which may have served quite fine for, you know, 100,000 years or something, it ain't working. Or as they say, how's that working for you, you know, as human beings? It's not. So here we come to meditate. This was all sort of the preamble to what I was going to talk about, but it seemed important to speak of tonight. Um, Here we come to meditate, and we sit in the middle of this mysterious human incarnation we've been given, and the point isn't to have some particular great meditation experience, although sometimes that happens, and it's a lovely thing but then it passes, right? You've noticed that, haven't you? <laughs> right? So you could try to grab it, but, I've got it, i got it, i got to keep it, but it doesn't work, right? So instead, you become the loving awareness that says, Oh, waves rise and pass. Poem. I breathe in rain, I breathe out green. I breathe in wind, I breathe out blue sky. I breathe in laughter, I breathe out happiness. I breathe in tears, I breathe out poetry. I breathe in daughters and sons, I breathe out hope. I breathe in words, I breathe out mountains. I breathe in fire, I breathe out clouds, I breathe in oppression, I breathe out liberation. I breathe in ink, I breathe out veins. I breathe in Buddha, I breathe out Mexican. This is Arnaldo Garcia, a Mexican Buddhist, you know? And it's beautiful because it's got all those parts that you are the Buddha and also that you are the weird individual person of your particular identity for a while anyway in this incarnation, and you get all of that. And when you sit, you sit in the midst of this. And in a way, the question is, well then, who am I? You know, who am I really? Poem I read all the time from Juan Ramon Jimenez. I am not I, yo no soy yo, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me, whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives, sweet, when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I'm indoors. The one who will remain standing when I die. And even though you don't exactly know what he's talking about, you do know. You know that there is some spirit in you, some knowing that, you know, even if you're caught up in something, you know that that's not the whole story that there's some bigger perspective. Or even when you're stuck, I mean, there is Nelson Mandela or Aung San Suu Kyi, 17 years of house arrest. And she said, they never really had me in prison because I never hated them. So they they can't imprison your spirit. So here we are in this mystery, and you come to meditate, and people bring their spiritual longings and their questions, and for some, They've heard the teachings of the Buddha bringing liberation from suffering, from birth and death, the deathless. For others, it's more a longing for beauty. You heard some amazing choral music or walked in the mountains in the summer in the Sierras or some great landscape. And you can feel how fragmented our modern life is. And there's a desire to open and reconnect yourself with the spirit of life. For some, you come because you've suffered a lot, and we have. If I were to ask how many of you have had a lot of suffering in your life, a lot of hands would go up, if you were honest, you know, sorrows. And there's some longing to find a way to transform that suffering into a joyful heart. Like the Dalai Lama, even though he carries the weight of Tibet and suffering, he still can laugh, he can still be so beautiful and joyful, or, Gosananda, my teacher from Cambodia, who had this incredible radiant smile and beauty even though he went through all of the Holocaust of Cambodia. So we're longing for some liberation, something greater than our troubles. Or just wanting to love for some people. You know that thing, right? To live fully, to love fully, or be awake the habit of going to sleep, we notice being half awake and really wanting to live in an awake way or a free way or maybe looking for dignity and justice for ourselves and respect for everyone in the world. And there are all these different things that draw us to a spiritual life or practice, but when you get right down to it, they also bring us back to one of the great questions, which is, Who am I? What am I supposed to do here? What am I doing as a human being? Who am I or what am I, is another way to ask it. Hmm. And I was talking to some of these neuroscientists who are friends, Richie Davidson, Cliff, Saren and others, said, the thing I'd really like you to study is the question of identity. How is it that we take our particular point of view, our tribe, our small group, or whatever, and say, this is me, all the Republicans, or all the Democrats, or the Libertarians, or the, you know, the, whatever you identify with, the golfers, right? (laughs) Or the feminists, or the, whatever it is, you know. Um, And how do we step beyond that small sense of self? In India it's said that when a baby is born, the song in the womb of the baby is, Do not let me forget who I am. And then the song changes after the baby's born, oh dear, I'm forgetting already. You know. And in Bali, where I lived for quite a while and different longer periods with my family and my daughter when she was little and studying Balinese dance and all these great things. Anyway, in Bali, they say that people who are closest to the gods are young people and old ones who are returning back to, you know, and the ones who are farthest from the gods are middle-aged people with mortgages, basically. They <laughs> you know, forget who you really are, right? So one of the best books I've read in the last few years, and I read pieces from it, is Greg, Father Greg Boyle's book, Tattoos on the Heart. He works with uh, Homeboy Industries in LA and with these gang kids. And so here's an account, he tells all these stories and he said, I'm working with these kids in this tough, you know, gang kid comes in, his walk is chingon, and high gear, head bobbed side to side, he's like, you know, I'm a tough man, sits down with a scowl. And I just look at him and I say, what's your name? Sniper. He sneers. <laughs> You know, Sniper. Okay, look, I've been down this block before. I have a feeling you didn't pop out of your mom and she took one look at your ass and said, Sniper, so come on, dog, what's your name? (laughs) Gonzalez, he relents a little. Okay, now, son, I know the staff here call you by your last name. I'm not down with that. Tell me, mijo, what's your mom call you? (laughs) Gabron. There's even the slightest flicker of innocence in his answer. Oye, no cabe duda, but son, I'm looking for birth certi- Not looking for birth certificate here. The kid softens. I can tell it's happening, but there's embarrassment and a newfound vul- vulnerability. Napoleon, he manages to squeak out, pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, I say, that's a fine, noble, historic name. But I'm almost positive that when your jafita calls you, She doesn't use the whole nine yardas. Come on, mijito, do you have an apado? What's your mom call you? And then I watch him go to some far distant place, a location he's not visited in some time. His voice, body language, and whole being are taking a new shape right before my eyes. Sometimes, his voice so quiet, I lean in. Sometimes, when my mom's not mad at me, she calls me napito. And I watched this kid move, transform from Sniper to Gonzalez to Cabron to Napoleon to Napito. We all just want to be called by the name our mom uses when she's not pissed off at us. <laughs> <laughs> and so we put on all these, all these garments of identity. And yet, as I say so often, when you stand and look in the mirror, and you notice that you've aged a bit, right? Come on, you have, right? And, yeah, it's so weird. It droops and sags and loses its fur and does all these things. But anyway, um, but the weird thing is, always, is that you don't necessarily feel older. You know that the feeling? And that's because it's only your body that's aged. And even looking in the mirror for a moment, there's some part of you that realizes that your body, you just rent it. It's not who you are. I mean, you get it from Avis or something like that. hurts, right? You have it for a while, but there's a spirit that's the witness of that, which is consciousness itself, which is this loving awareness that is who you are. And that consciousness was born when you you know came into the womb and born with you as a child, innocent and pure and inviolable, um untainted, and it looks at you in the mirror and says, "Well, huh, getting a little older there. How's the incarnation going? You know, really? Um, because it knows that that's not who you are. That's temporary in some deep way, and it's so. Amazing to have a human incarnation with the little bits of fur and wiggly things, and as I like to say, the hole at one end into which you stuff dead plants and animals regularly and grind them up and you know glug them down the tube and well, that. It's strange, isn't it? Huh? You, you, and if you don't think that's strange, pay attention next time you're making love. It's a <laughs> fabulous thing to do, but it's weird. It is, and it's how we make new people. Come on! You know, that's where you came from. A little squirt here, a little whatever, egg, a new person. Come on, it's insane. It is, isn't it? Okay, so here you are. You've got a human incarnation. Now the practices here, the practices of mindfulness of the breath and body, of mindfulness of thoughts and feelings, practices of loving awareness, of compassion and loving kindness, Um, what they do, yes, you learn how to calm yourself or release some of the tightness and stress, find some graciousness, but most fundamentally what they do is they invite a profound shift of identity. From the body of fear, it's called that small sense of self and all the history and trauma that you have, which is genuine. Your unworthiness. How many people feel unworthy? Don't, Father, don't raise your hand, Because it's ubiquitous here, you know, and people, all the stories that you have about who you are. It's like that cartoon from Jules Pfeiffer where he, in a few little squares, is this man sitting there sort of reflective with a reflective look on his face saying I inherited my father's uh, way of thinking and his attitude about things, next little thing, I inherited his way of dressing and his style, I inherited my father's uh, artistic ability and his um, drive and ambition, and then, and I inherited my mother's contempt for my father. There it is, you know. So you could say, all right, this is who I am your parents, your family, and so forth. Um, but the Buddhist texts begin with this phrase O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened one, do not forget who you really are. Do not forget that spirit of freedom, the Loving awareness that's looking in the mirror and saying, wow, look at this, here we are in the middle of this incarnation, really interesting time. What Thomas Merton called the secret beauty of your heart, the nobility. Um, and I love the story of Ramdas um, coming back from being with his guru in India years ago, author of Be Here Now. And he'd gone to India as this Harvard professor and met this guru who was quite an amazing being. From every all the friends I had who were with him, um, and he said the, the, this guru looked at me with in India they call it the glance of mercy, with so much love. He said I, I could hardly fathom that, and yet he could read my mind. He knew everything I was thinking, and he still loved me. You know that now there's something right, and. Um, after a year or two, or whatever, he kind of urged Ramdas to go back to America and begin to teach, as he did and became quite famous in the 60s and 70s. And Ramdas said, I'm not ready, I'm too impure, I have a lot more inner work to do, I'm too neurotic, and, and so forth. And his guru got up from the bench where he was sitting, peered at Ramdas very closely and then walked around him really slowly, kind of looking him up and down. took about five minutes, kind of looking at all different parts of him, and then sat back down, smiled and said, I see no imperfections. It's such an amazing thing to say to a human being, to see that beauty that was born in you and that can't be lost. And you can forget it at times, but it's there. It's that human spirit. So the invitation of meditation, yes, again, calming insights, understanding comes. But also, it's a shift of identity where you can hold yourself more lightly. You know what it's like to lie out in the grass and look up into the Milky Way, right? I like to do it and pretend, actually, that I'm on the bottom of the planet held on by the magnet of gravity, right? And I'm looking down into space. You know, it's really wild. Because you are actually, there's no, you know, whoa, look down there, right? But, you know, or you go way up in the mountains, you know, whether it's the Milky Way or the high mountains or something, and you get a big perspective, and here we are, the ant people worried about all these things and so forth, and you're part of something so huge and magnificent. Now, it doesn't mean that the meditation invites a kind of spiritual bypass or end run on your humanity. You also sit and you get the ocean of tears and your grief and loneliness and the pains of your body. And you have to learn how to bring a loving awareness and a fearless presence to you know the measure of sorrows you have. My teacher, Ajahn Sa, said if you haven't Really wept deep, deeply, you probably haven't been meditating for very long, you know, so that's part of it, and, um, or the poet Hafiz, who says, "You know, do not abandon, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. let it cut more deeply, let it ferment and season you like few human ingredients can. So you see it and instead of opening the refrigerator. <laughs> you know, when you're lonely or bored or going online or calling somebody, you sit with your human condition, with the trauma you carry and the longing and the loneliness and the grief and the pains, and you honor it as we did tonight, as if you name it and honor it with a bow. Not as a bypass, and yet, as you do, as the mind quiets and the heart softens, you also discover that it's not who you really are. That identity is, you know, it's quite tentative. Sakaya ditti, it's called in the Buddhist psychology, this capacity of consciousness to create a little box or a wall and say, This is who I am, and this is not who I am, right? And so, it, my body or my family or my tribe or my gender or my nation or my orientation or my job or my age i'm an old person or a young person or you know a military person or a peaceful you know somebody who works for peace i saw this cartoon in the new yorker that shows two generals striding down the hall of the pentagon with all their medals one says to the other it really scared me you know I dreamed the meek inherited the earth. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, we have our identities. But if you are, if you're a cop, let's say you're a cop, you're a police policewoman or policeman. And I remember being on this radio show, Michael Krasny, one time doing call-in in San Francisco. And I get a call from this guy and he says, um, Hi, you know, Jack, I'm am a I'm a beat cop in San Francisco. I walk the streets and... You know, I try not to be violent, I'm really a Buddhist practitioner, but I carry a gun, is it okay to carry a gun and be a Buddhist? And I said, I hope so. You know, I'd like a lot more like you. He said, I really don't want to be violent and I try to minimize, you know, I try to help people, whatever. But here you are. If you're the cop and you go home and you can't take your badge and your gun off and just be dad or mom or husband or wife or whatever it is in your family, and you insist on keeping that role, your family ain't gonna be very healthy or last very long. It won't, because it's just a role. Um, and so we have all these different identities. Um, there was this study, I talked about it some weeks ago, that was done. A group of students, you know, it's, that's of course who they study, right at some university or other, was invited to take a, a difficult math test. And the women who were invited, it was a group of women who were also Asian-American women. okay—and They were going to take this difficult math test. And just before they sat down to take the test, half of the group, a little line was dropped in, we're really glad that you're going to take this test. Um, And uh, of course, you know that um, people from Asia or Asian-American and so forth do very well in math, so enjoy the test, right? Next half the group sits down and says, We're really glad you're going to take this test. We know math is a little hard for women, but we hope we wish you well. <laughs> okay, same Asian American women. The ones who, who heard the it's hard for women and identified as being a woman, their scores were 25% lower than the same group who identified with being Asian. What you think of yourself starts to make the way your life unfolds. You understand that? Julia Childs. Because in our country, it's like after 9-11, our president said the best antidote to 9-11 is to go shopping, right? Remember that? (laughs) That's our national response, okay? (laughs) Julia Childs writes, in department stores so much unnecessary kitchen equipment is bought indiscriminately by people who had just come in for men's underwear. And we're consumers, and we're taught to be. So that's who you are. You are a consumer. The more you have, the better, right? Well, okay, that's an identity. But who are you really? Who are you? What does it mean to step back from the different roles you play, which you want to play beautifully? You want to be a teacher? You want to be a student? You want to be a lover? You want to be a caretaker for nature? you want to you know all the beautiful things you can do for a human being but you want to hold them lightly and then you say well in my family you know i mean i love the story that i tell from ramdas where somebody asked him you know ramdas here you are teaching all these hindu things about you know chanting to ram and sita and krishna and the bhagavad gita and stuff but weren't you born jewish i mean what about your jewish heritage and He was bar mitzvahed as I was, you know, and had this Jewish upbringing. And he said, you know, that's beautiful. He said, there's lots of great stuff in the Jewish tradition, as in all the great spiritual traditions. And there's the Hasidic teachings and mystical teachings, and there's the Kabbalah and so forth. He said, but remember, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. (laughs) And it's it's a very, You know, he was quite witty before his stroke. He had this great gift. But also there's something quite profound in it. Because who you are is not limited by your parents. And it's not limited by your childhood. and It's not limited by your body. And so the invitation is to remember who you really are. The innate compassion You know, and not to get too proud about it or something, this is a study from the University of Chicago where they sought to find out whether a rat would release a fellow rat from this really constricted enclosure. So there was a a rat in a big cage and, you know, doing okay as cages go. And then there was a rat in this really uncomfortable tight part right next to the cage. And the rat in the big cage, there was a lever that it could push without any reward. It was poking around, and then it would release the other rat, and it learned to do it. And then when they'd put rats that were stuck in there and would squeak, it would go over and release them because it didn't, it, whatever reason, it thought it should, you know, it should release them. They should be free. And they would give the free the rat that was free roaming in the cage. Uh, chocolate chips. Where's my cookie, my chocolate chip cookie? Anyway, they'd give it chocolate chips, and not only would the rat release the other rat, but most rats, they'd give it five chocolate chips, and it would save one or two chocolate chips for the rat that it released. So, I mean, I know you're compassionate, but, you know, don't take it like too, you know. (laughs) Build it up too big, right? My teacher Ajahn Chah, who was this wonderful forest monk and master, um, very loving and wise. He practiced in a quite ascetic tradition. We were in a in the tradition of forest wanderers, and so we lived very, very simply. And he lived in caves and out in the forest where there were. Tigers and wild animals and things like that for a number of years, and learned the kind of forest and medicine and all those things that one learned back in those days when there were still the great forests in Thailand and Laos. a lot of them have been cut down, but they were there when I went forty some years ago and um, after traveling and training and having all these insights and learning all these things and meditative samadhi experiences and jhana and so forth, he went and found the greatest meditation master of the time, this other Ajahn named Ajahn Man. And he went and he told him about all the training that he'd been doing and all the experiences that he'd had, and the lights and visions and insights and great openings. And Ajahn Man listened. And didn't say anything for a while and said, well, that's nice, but you've missed the point. He said, those are just experiences. And the real point is to ask, to whom do they happen? Who are you? Who is the witness to these experiences? Because experiences are like going to the movies, romantic comedy and war movie and tragedy movie and, you know... Um, documentary and all these kinds of movies and then they're gone but who is it that witnesses who are you and then Ajahn Mun instructed Ajahn Chah my teacher to turn his attention back to the witnessing what I was calling loving awareness tonight and Ajahn Chah's phrase was to be the one who knows to be the knowing and to rest in the awareness that sees thoughts and feelings, pleasure and pain, gain and loss come and go, to rest in your Buddha nature, which is spacious and timeless and open and filled with a kind of natural connection because it's not this small sense of self, not the body of fear. And then you can honor your incarnation but you know how it is, you're in conflict, you're in difficulty, and then you take a walk, you take a deep breath, <sighs> you do a few moments of your mindfulness meditation, you bring in loving kindness and all of a sudden that contraction and that struggle and so forth starts to soften and open and you say, oh yeah, here we are, conflict, humans have conflict. She wants that and he wants that and you know we have differences and we work them out in some way or other. You know, and the, that bigger perspective opens. And as you practice, and that's why we practice, not to have some state or some experience, you come more and more to trust the capacity to release the grasping of some particular identity. I'm a liberal or a conservative or a feminist or a whatever it happens to be. All of you know, which might be fine identities, but please hold them lightly. The Buddha said, those who cling to their views and opinions not only suffer, but they go around the world annoying other people. (laughs) You know it's true, don't you? Right? And so there's a way of releasing them. And as you do, what begins to blossom quite naturally is a sense of calm and ease. Not because the thoughts stop, they can stop sometimes, but then they start up again. The mind secretes thoughts like the salivary glands, gland secretes saliva. It just does, you know, that ocean of pictures and words. You just notice it like a river, you know. And if you hold on, then you get rope burn because it keeps changing. And the perceptions keep changing and the body changes and so forth. And the point isn't to stop change because you are a river but to become the space of awareness that allows the river and holds it with some compassion and graciousness and lightness and ease, which grows. And then the qualities of the Buddha of integrity and truthfulness, clarity, patience grow, because you're not trying to be something. You're inhabiting what you've been given and doing beautiful, whatever you can do with it. But you're not holding on so tightly. And that's really what liberation is about. It's not about being somebody different. I mean, you're weird and you can't help it, right? <laughs> it's not about being somebody different. It's a girl weird, that's right. It's about letting go and saying, oh, this is the way things are in the human realm. Now let me love anyway, even though there are bombs, you know, even though there's tragedy and loss. Let me love anyway, even though there's beautiful things. Some of them are tended and some of them are ignored. And I said the other day, um, I was talking about Wes Nisker, who teaches here, my good friend, who went up to interview Gary Snyder this winter for the Inquiring Mind or news journal and talked to Gary, who's now in his mid-80s and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and you know, amazing ecological visionary environmentalist from the 1950s and 60s, one of our great environmental heroes, said, all right, Gary, he said, you know, you look at the world now 50, 60 years later from when you started and there's been deforestation and global warming and loss of species and all these great climate change problems. And um, what advice do you have to us at this time? And he said, "Don't feel guilty. <laughs> Don't feel guilty," is his advice. He said, "If you feel guilty, that's not going to work." He said, "Save it because you love it. Not out of guilt, guilt. You'll just get in some fight and make it worse." He said, "If you want to save it, do it just because it's beautiful and you love it. It's like your lover and you take care of her, the earth. You understand? So you act. But you act in a different way with graciousness, without the clinging as much, without holding your view and the way it's supposed to be and who you are and your people and those people and so forth. You act out of love. And there grows then this beautiful sense of trust. You live more in the reality of the present, which is the invitation of mindfulness. The fact is there's only the present. All the rest of it is just living in your head, quite honestly. Because the future is just thoughts, right? Where is it? In the past? Memory. It might be a good memory, but it's just a memory. The only thing that's really alive, where you can love a person, or see them deeply, or care for them, or the earth, or something, is now. And in fact, that's all there is, is now. So you let go. And you say, all right, I'll live this human life with... Resting in loving awareness, being the conscious witness of it all. Not in a detached way, but actually in a way that's more deeply connected. And this beautiful trust grows as you live in the present. What grows is the capacity not to be so lost in the past or not so frightened of the future, but instead to plant seeds that are beautiful and to trust that somehow the earth wants you here. I mean, obviously life approves of you, or you wouldn't still be here, right? You are approved of. How's that? Actually, there was a thing on NPR um, some time ago that I listened to um, where uh, a guy had gone down in Times Square, the big um, subway station in New York, dressed himself quite nicely, and started to walk up to people and say to them, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. And it completely freaked people out. You know, No one knew who you was or anything, but we want to know, are we in, are we out, or whatever. Okay. So I have something to tell you, listen closely. You're in. You're in. Poet Dina Metzger writes... Give me everything mangled and bruised, and I will make a light of it to make you weep, and we will have rain, and we will begin again." And Even with the tragedies and the sorrows, it's not the end of the story. Humanity has had tragedies and sorrows, and we continue. Life pushes itself up through the cracks in the sidewalk, and through your heart and body, your inviolable spirit lives. and. Um, when you sit and let yourself quiet and touch, you feel a part of that. so one last story, and then we'll sit for a moment again a minute with a compassion for Boston and all those there and this is a story from Barbara Kingsolver and it's a true story she writes about a October day in the forested hills of Loristan in the high mountains in the far north of Iran, the people who are nomadic people that go up in the mountains and live there. They were getting ready to go and move lower down the mountains, but they still had their place up there for that season. And they had given the young children from their upper village where they were into the care of... a uh, young girl, 11 or 12 years old, which was the usual thing to do, and she took care of the 2 and 3 and 4 year olds. And she came running back to the village at some point, and she said, I can't find him. One of the kids had disappeared, 16 months old, not really that good at walking, still very little. She said, I looked everywhere, I was paying attention to these other kids, and he disappeared. He doesn't walk that great, I can't find him, help, help. So everybody ran, and they looked, they couldn't find him, and they went back to the village, and they looked every place he might hide under things and in, you know, where things were stored and every possible place and they couldn't find him and night came and they got torches and they looked all around and shouted his name and it was cold and they couldn't find him the next day and the parents are dying loss of this child and then somebody in the village said they'd sighted a bear. They said, oh no, not a bear. Oh no. So after two days of looking, they say, we've got to go up further in the mountains. Even though he was a little kid, maybe he wandered way up there where the caves are and the group of men go up and there's a whole series of limestone caves and wild trees and they go from one cave to another and are almost ready to give up and at the mouth of whatever cave it is, the fifth cave or the tenth cave, they hear a cry. And definitely the cry of a child. And the cautiously, they, they look in the darkness and then they smell bear. And they see, when they look, the boy's in there crying, this sort of half-light. And the whole shape of this huge mother bear that's in there. The whole round, furry body of her. But there's the child right with the bear. And they don't know what to do. And so they light more torches and they get everything they can to make wild noises and so forth and scare the bear out of the cage, cave, and rush in and grab the child. And took him out and praised Allah. And she says, I looked for the story to find out what happened. I went through the news sources, but I don't read Arabic or Farsi. But it's not a mistake or a hoax. It happened. The baby was found in the bear's den, reported by Associated Press, if you believe them, and the news from from there. She said, and I really researched it, and he was alive, unscarred, and perfectly well after three days, and well-fed, smelling of milk. The bear was nursing the child. What does this mean, she says. How is it possible that a huge, hungry bear would take a pitifully small, delicate human child to her breast rather than rip him into food. But she was a mammal, a mother. She was lactating. She might have lost one of her own young somewhere. So she was driven by the same pure quality of maternity to take this small, warm neonate to her belly and hold him there gently. Now, you could read this story and declare impossible even though many witnesses have sworn it's true. Or you could read this story and think how warm lives are drawn to one another in cold places. And think of the unconquerable force of a mother's love, the fact of the DNA code that we share in 98% measure with other mammals. You could think of all that and say, of course, the bear nursed the baby. He was crying from hunger. She had milk. Small wonder. <coughs> so let's just sit for a minute. For you too are being fed the milk of the Dharma and the milk of the humanity around you and of the air that you breathe and the plants and fruits and bounty of the earth that's offered to you, you too are being fed. You're held by the spirits of the bay trees and the oaks and all the beings around you. And you're asked to live wisely, to respond to the ever-changing praise and blame and gain and loss and pressure and pain and birth and death with a compassionate heart, with nobility and dignity, (coughs) your Buddha nature. And hold again all those in Boston, the frightened ones, the ones in the hospital who've been wounded, the terrified family members, all the people who take the terror inside and breathe with them and remind them to soften their hearts and find their courage and dignity. Breathe with you compassion. you would offer to them, also offer it to yourself. Let the circle of compassion include this being seated here, your own mysterious, amazing human life in incarnation. As you would hold them with compassion, hold yourself too. Thank you for your kind attention.